Welcome to Team Futurism. Today I'm here with Lee Booth, who I met at the Quillette Social a couple of weeks ago. He's written for Quillette quite a bit about nuclear energy. There is a growing movement, from what I can tell, about the, you know, people being positive about nuclear energy. A lot of the fear tactics that that we've heard since we were children, a lot of it has has just kind of like not withstood the test of time and think for good reason. Um, some of that I want to get into, but let's just kind of start with your background and what got you interested in this topic. Sure. So I first got exposed to energy in a class in college in my senior seminar, but the class was actually about, was about um, like city policies. And so, you know, a lot of cities have clean energy goals and energy efficiency goals. So we read about that and I thought it was really cool. And so I wrote my, you know, senior paper on that, um, on how uh, cities could take over their their electric utility through municipalization uh, to do their own thing instead of having to depend on the corporate, you know, the corporate bosses and the state legislatures to do what they want. And, um, you know, that kind of sparked, that sparked my interest. And after I graduated from college, I worked for um, the National Domestic Workers Alliance would working to elect Democrats in Virginia and then COVID and then um, COVID happened. But then I got a job working for my city councilman hmm. uh, in his reelection campaign. And then after that, I cold emailed Michael Schellenberger saying I read Apocalypse Never, which is a great book. And it was like, I'd love to work in your field. And so, you know, we talked and he hired me at Environmental Progress. Um, so, you know, I got experience, you know, editing is Forbes and Substack pieces on energy, doing research for energy pieces, and then also research on other topics like homelessness in California. Um, he ran for governor, I was on his on his campaign. And but after that, he um, basically, you know, environmental progress is one part time employee now. So afterward, mm -hmm. you know, let go. Um, so I've been writing freelance since then. Um, he connected me with Quillette, so I got I got an article published there. Um, was one of their top ten most read for 2022, and there's another in the works. And uh, I'm going to be writing more about energy for them in the future. That and I have talked about doing that. So, um, so that's me in a nutshell. And I think energy is just it's intellectually fascinating. It's the reason, you know, you wonder what's like. Why for most of human history was everyone poor? It's like well because they hadn't figured out how to use fossil fuels yet. Mm -hmm. It's really is really what it is and it would you know we take energy for granted at least we did until very recently and it turns out if you want to be rich you have to have lots of cheap energy and if you want to be poor you either have no energy or as europe's finding out expensive energy is a great way to make people poor um so the stakes are high but that's what makes it fun so what is your assessment of the popularity of nuclear energy right now so I do know that a lot of boomer types probably still have a lot of fear about the nuclear energy. I know that there still is a lot of propaganda, I mean propaganda out there about the 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 harms of nuclear energy. I say propaganda in quotes because I mean there are real harms, right? I mean nothing nothing comes without any cost. Everything has a cost to it. But kind of in in my assessment, I'm pro at every level getting away from fossil fuels. Um I have some problems with solar panels and and wind. I think that they all do have some problems. The the main one is this is just a Michael Schellenberger talking point, but 
you just need so much more space and so much more resources to do wind, solar, anything. You see that like solar panels taking over huge swaths of deserts in order to get just like a fraction of the energy you need to power a city, that sort of a thing. Whereas mm -hmm. with nuclear power, one little plant, you can power half a state. You know, and and you're using just a little teeny bit of uranium to do that with, which is just like that seems like to me like that's screaming at us. That's the future, and I think that a lot of people like me, you know, of the millennial generation and younger, are just kind of convinced by that sort of a viewpoint. I mean, everyone kind of agrees we got to get away from fossil fuels, unless like you're just a right wing person who for some reason thinks fossil fuel is still exciting for some like own libs reason. I don't know. But uh, what, what's kind of like your assessment of the the popularity among, let's say, U.S. folks? I, I kind of looked into stats in this, but I don't remember offhand. But do you have any, you know, assessment of, of the popularity now and in the future? Yeah. So, I mean, I haven't looked. Well, so the polling data in the, the U.S. most recent, I, I haven't looked at by generation, but for the first time, I think maybe a year or two ago, nuclear power pulled above 50% approval. Okay, wow. Um, and it's not like it's 5149, I think it's, you know, 51-ish approve, maybe, and then you have a, a certain amount that don't know at all, and then probably 30 something that disapprove. Um, so that's a big deal. Um, you could, you know, you go to lawmakers now and say, look, nuclear is popular in your district, nuclear is popular in your state. Um, mm -hmm. states around the country are ending their uh, nuclear bans, like West Virginia ended their ban. A lot of a lot of states are seeing nuclear as a way to revitalize coal communities. Um, and so, you know, things are changing. And in Illinois, they saved their nuclear plants um, in a in a really tough down to the wire political fight. Mm -hmm. And now those plants, because of high fossil fuel prices, are saving their consumers a billion a year. Whoa. So so hopefully stories like that get out and people realize just how big a deal nuclear's energy security is. And then, of course, so much of energy is economic. So when fossil fuels become expensive, nuclear just becomes more attractive. Mm -hmm. um, and that polling data I mentioned, that was before the energy crisis. So I, I haven't looked at, at polling data post-energy crisis, but... I would be shocked if nuclear was somehow less approved of now than right. it was 18 months ago. It really does seem like a state-by-state state thing. That's what I always kind of read in these articles about, like, it's this state is doing this, that's it. At what level is this a federal issue? Does the federal government play any important role right now in making nuclear go forward? Yeah, I mean, nuclear lives or dies by the federal government right now through regulatory power. Okay. Um so, well, first, the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law both provide a lot of money for nuclear, uh, both to save current reactors and then to build small modular nuclear reactors. Mm -hmm. um, it's the biggest investment. Those bills are the biggest investment in nuclear since the 60s. And so that's a huge deal. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the reason that these nuclear plants take so long to build is one, they're first of a kind, which always takes a long time to build in industrial processes. But then also the regulations are just absolutely insane. Uh, Vodal in Georgia is the only nuclear plant in the U.S. currently under construction. It's been under construction for 24 years. Oh, man. See, that's depressing. It really is. <laughs> and so there was like one, there's a story recently of like this pipe fitting became loose or something. And so they have to replace the pipe fitting. It should take them maybe 12 hours, but it's going to take them a month. It costs them a million dollars a day because the NRC requires a massive amount of paperwork just to make a minor fix. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I mean, we shouldn't be surprised that this is happening because the environmental movement is, you know, they explicitly admitted in the 70s and 60s that we're going to scaremonger about nuclear to increase regulatory burdens to make the energy source uneconomical, and they've succeeded. Oh, wow. I didn't yeah. know that they're that explicit about it. Oh, I mean, you know, sometimes people say the quiet part out loud. I don't know if, you know, <laughs> somehow Schellenberger found an interview. I don't know. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> But it was like it was like the president of the Sierra Club. It wasn't just some rando organizer. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it doesn't have to be this way. Like like Russia, China, and South Korea all build nuclear plants within five to eight years. France too, right? France is pretty quick, I think. Oh, they were back in the day. I mean, okay. in the seventies and eighties, not anymore. Okay. Um, no one in the West builds quickly anymore. Okay. Um. But also just for some historical perspective, you know, there's 441 nuclear reactors currently operating. The mean construction time for these reactors was 7.5 years. Whoa, that's fast. Yeah. Wow. So this when 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 anti-nuclear people say nuclear is too slow, mm-hmm. that is explicitly a Western perspective that is ahistorical and misses out on the other stuff the rest of the world's doing. Interesting. Okay, that's fascinating. Yeah. So so Jumping ahead a little bit, but modular nuclear reactors, a design was just approved this week or last week by the U.S. government. So that is going to be going forward. And that has like Bill Gates money behind it. He has one of these companies. Um, Bill Gates at least thinks that this is kind of the future. What is your take on modular nuclear reactors? I know this is another thing that it's not going to be built for years out into the future, but presumably once they do have a design that not only is approved, but is built, they'll be able to replicate it pretty quickly and pretty cost effectively. Cause I, I've read something about how they can design these on site and just build them up. Um, and also, I mean, they're, they're small, you know, there's, so you can build them for a neighborhood rather than, you know, for a full city, that sort of thing. But what is your perspective on that technology? Yeah, I think that the strongest case for small modular reactors is that they fill a niche that nuclear currently can't fill which is these you know, big light water reactors, the gigawatt plants, they can't produce heat uh, for industrial processes, like a thousand degrees Celsius, for example. And so if we want to decarbonize heavy industry, we're gonna need SMRs and SMR is gonna be much more efficient at that than mm-hmm. wind and solar, um, which kind of makes intuitive sense. Like imagine turning electricity into a thousand degrees Celsius versus just splitting atoms. Like, right. it just doesn't quite make much sense. Like imagine your electric stove, like no one likes the electric stoves. Um, which is a hot topic, but you know we don't have to give them that particular can of worms. But um, and then also smaller nations like Estonia wants to get a 300 megawatt uh, small modular reactor from GE Hitachi. There's only one point like 1.1 or 1.3 million people in Estonia, so they can't. If they had a one gigawatt plant, that would basically be the entire country, and you don't want your entire electricity supply to be in one facility. Right. Um, so they need smaller stuff and. We've built SMRs before. I mean, all the plants started back in the, the 50s and 60s were small plants. And so building hmm. small is not a big deal. Um, it's it's the question of the econo- economics of scale versus economics of repeatability. We scaled up our nuclear plants over time because it, be, it was cheaper that way. Um, or at least they thought it was cheaper. Cost, costs in a lot of countries ended up rising um, after they started building these huge plants. Not in South Korea or Russia and China, but in other places. Um, Actually, no, I'm sorry. Russia and China, they don't publish their figures. It's likely that they're... Okay. But, um, when but, I've 
Uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but when, when I've gone on to these, the websites of these small modular nuclear reactors, like I've been on Bill Gates's website and a couple of, couple of others of the, these companies, um, there's like an excitement about it as if it's like Tesla or like a tech company. And yeah. it feels like there is just a lot of like energy from like Silicon Valley around these sorts of things. And it doesn't seem like there's a lot of bureaucracy that's, that's necessarily holding it down. Like when you start looking into you know, proper nuclear facilities. Um, do you think that just, you know, one, if I'm assessing that right, but two, like, do you think that just that that natural energy and the interest from Silicon Valley folks and private billionaires, do you think that that could help push that technology forward more quickly than it otherwise might be? I mean, they're definitely true believers, true mm -hmm. believers with pockets. Um, yeah. I think nuclear's problem is not, it's not going to be lack of, of private sector interest so long as government gives the signals to the private sector that it's worth pursuing and they're not going to kill the biz. Yeah. Um, I mean, globally, there's 70 reactor designs being tried out around the globe right now that are, you know, advanced or like new, new types of nuclear that aren't just the standard big water, big water reactors. Um, I mean, I've talked to people, there's definitely Silicon Valley types, you know, got to love some tech nuke bros, you know, yep. I want to hang out with them. Uh, <laughs> so, no, so I, mean, I think I don't think money is a problem as long as is the government um, says you know we'll help you out and it, it's happening in the U.S. like the government's spending a lot of money to do public-private partnerships with companies like Bill Gates's Terra Power to demonstrate nuclear reactors. Um, I mean, all these these new reactors like New Scale, someone that recently got approved. I mean, they're working with they've right. gotten government funding too, um, which is which makes sense. It's you know these first of a kind builds are going to be really on a they're going to be uneconomical. The first and so the question isn't the question is can you make it economical and i think you know there's a lot of smart people working on this and the idea of of using factories is not is not a crazy idea to cut down costs uh, a lot of the folks i've talked to compare um what they want to do with smrs to aircraft it's like a you know an airplane takes a very unsafe activity which is being at three thirty thousand feet in the air and through lots of incredible engineering makes it incredibly safe, like mm -hmm. way safer than driving, of course. And, you know, these planes, you know, 737 is like, what, 10,000 parts? So, I mean, these aren't simple machines, but they 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 produce them at factories and and that's how they make um, these planes affordable. You order a bunch so that way you get the repeatability and then you just cr crank them out and it works out economically. Um, fortunately, the, like the Tennessee Valley Authority has already signaled, it's like, yeah, we would love to buy like 20, 30 of these nuclear reactors. Oh, wow. Which is what you need. Otherwise, this, this right. doesn't work if customers don't say, look, I want 20. Right, um, right. And like Russia and China, one reason they're so good at building nuclear is because like China's like ordering dozens of plants at a time. Okay, uh, that makes sense. They have 150 yeah. plants under proposal right now. Um, but no, so so the ingredients are good. There's, there's private funding. The one thing that's in the way is that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is terrible. Um, mm. Of course, like the Breakthrough Institute, which is a great think tank, recently just published a, a quick article about the, the new, new Nuclear Regulatory Commission's most recently released uh, regulations for advanced nuclear reactors. Like their the Congress in 2019 passed a bill to have the NRC come up with a new regulatory pathway for these different types of reactors because the current pathway is only for war, large water-cooled reactors. Um, and the Breakthrough Institute just totally took it to task, saying that the 
the safety scenarios employed by the NRC were ridiculous. One of the scenarios was this plant's going to have a major meltdown every year and then get fixed every year for 40 years. And it's like, if that's your bar, of course it's not going to work. Like the regulations, that's insane. Like mm -hmm. no one, I, I think even the most rabid anti-nuclear people don't think every plant's going to blow up once a year, every year. Um, and so that kind of, there just needs to be major changes there. And I don't know how to, how to fix the NRC, but Congress, you know, these, these business folks need to make sure that the NRC, we need to, if the NRC isn't fixed, nuclear is not going to get very far. So mm -hmm. that is probably, that is the biggest challenge. We talk about federal issues, like if the NRC doesn't get fixed, then, you know, I think nuclear is the future, but it's going to take a long time if the NRC yeah. is not fixed. Yeah. Well, I mean, I want to run down some of the problems with nuclear, at least the perceived problems. Um, so let me just start very generally, which is that, I mean, I, I do want to kind of like steel man the arguments against nuclear, right? To have an interesting conversation. Um, you know, a lot of people that I respect, just smart people, um, maybe environmentalists, but maybe not, uh, they will just stereotype the pro-nuclear people who are just like, you know, diehard nuclear fans, and they will call them like the nuclear bros on Twitter, right? Um, how do you respond to, and they would probably lump you into that category of like a nuclear bro on Twitter, right? Who's someone who's on Twitter just like tweeting about, nuclear is awesome, yeah. guys, what are we doing? Why aren't we doing this? Um, and quickly shooting down like the, the anti-nuclear rhetoric with like quick talking points, right? Yeah. Well, how would you respond to the general framing that there is this world of, of over-eager nuclear bros out there, particularly on Twitter? Um, how, how, you know, what's, what's your take on that as, as, you know, framing? So, you know, I'm still relatively new to Twitter, so I, I don't know the, I don't know everything about the various Twitter, the Twitterati, you know, <laughs> forming. Um, but I mean, polling for nuclear shows that support is for it is gendered. Men are much more likely than women to support nuclear. Mm. And so the idea that there, there are hordes of young guys on the internet promoting nuclear on Twitter is probably pretty accurate. And, and we, we seem to fit that, that mold, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I've been quite fine. guilty of this, right? <laughs> when they're like, oh, the new, it's like, people are mean on Twitter. So like, I'm sure there are plenty yeah. of new who are total jerks on Twitter, but it's not like the anti-nuclear people are all like the models of British politeness or something. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so if someone says like, oh, that's just the nuke bros, like if they're dismissing you by just saying that you're a bro, then they are not a serious thinker, mm -hmm. obviously. Um, so, you know, that that perception, that political perception problem is not something I've really, I've really put much thought into, but I don't think nuclear, I think nuclear can survive you know, some guys on the internet being mean about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, like, this this is kind of like my perspective is that all the people who are pro-nuclear, in order to be pro-nuclear, I think this includes you, uh, we haven't spoken too much, but it the people who are into this, they have to really know their stuff, right? Because it's not necessarily the cool thing to believe, although it's getting to be the cool thing, I think. But it's kind of not like the, the pro- solar pro wind all anything that's like green new new deal stuff on the left that's cool like it's, it's you're not going to get any pushback from the mainstream anything if you're into those things if and if you drive uh an ev right whereas to be nuclear it's still kind of like like radical and so to me the people who believe these things 
were pro-nuclear, they, they tend to not be super naive about it. Whereas other folks, they can get away with being a little naive because they're not constantly facing criticism, crit criticism for it. That's how I see it. Yeah, I mean, for my own journey, I started, when I first got interested in energy, I just assumed that solar and wind were super fantastic. You know, it's like yeah. carbon, they're, they're, they don't have fuel costs. Um, they don't have fuel at all. The fuel's renewable, like they must be amazing. And then you only got to nuclear later. And um, I don't know how many, maybe on, you know, I come from, you know, the left side of the aisle, maybe in, in certain Republican circles, people go from not caring about energy straight to nuclear. Um, but I think for most people, yeah, you have to, you have to learn the benefits of nuclear mm -hmm. uh, in depth. And I certainly like, I certainly wouldn't like nuclear if I didn't find the arguments incredibly compelling. And I've spent a lot of time um, like reading reports about like Fukushima radiation and that kind of stuff to get my own, my own viewpoints. Right. And of, of nuclear solidified. So. Um, yeah. Like those incidences, they're inherently terrifying. I remember being a kid, being a, being a kid and, and fearing those irrationally, just fearing that sort of a disaster mm -hmm. and be like, Oh, I hope we don't live near one of those, these plants, you know, yeah. uh, which is just kind of funny, but I think that, that that's also fine. You know, I think it's fine to be scared of things that are, that are unusual. Um, uh, do you know Peter Zion? Have you followed him at all? I really yeah, like this guy. Fun to listen to. I don't know if I agree with him on everything or whatever, yeah. because I'm not a geopolitical analyst myself. Uh, so I only like read New York Times articles and listen to him and have a couple of perspectives. You know, he's talked to Ian Brimmer and, you know, even Ian Brimmer like gives credence to a lot of what he says. And so, you know, you know, he, I don't think he's that radical, but he says things that are kind of shocking and he's just fun to listen to and has a you know big audience right now. He is, as he says, broadly pro-nuclear the reasons that he says that he's not completely bullish on it are one, expensive. Everyone agrees with that. We all acknowledge that, I think. Uh, two, nuclear waste. It doesn't go away for a very long time. And, and, and you know, the U.S. government argues about where to put the nuclear waste, even though clearly we can store it safely. No state is like, hey, put it in my backyard, you know, so it becomes a political issue. And politicians just don't want to deal with that. I think that's a real, real honest criticism. Um, although, you know, there are obviously ways to store it safely. And three, he says that, and this I don't know about, but he says that when we try to take nuclear waste and turn it into a reusable fuel source, then that process right now makes it scarily close to being what the sort of thing, sort of material, material that can be used in a nuclear weapon. And so that's why we're very cautious about going down that road. Uh, what is your response to Peter Zion and those points? Sure. Um, yeah, so I mean, when it comes to nuclear waste, I think the important thing to know is that one, there's not a lot of it. All the nuclear mm -hmm. waste in the United States can fit on one football field, stack 70 feet high, and that's 60 years of power production. I mean, that's insane. Like a, a football field worth of solar panels is worth like one one thousandth of a nuclear plant. I mean, just to put yeah. in, wow. in this ice and that 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 number is just me guesstimating. That is not a, like a calculated figure, but you get what I'm saying. Um, and and then it's also not hard to handle. Um, no one's ever been hurt in the history of civilian nuclear waste. Uh, we store it in cooling pools for, you know, five to 10 years. Water is actually such a good shield of radiation that you can swim in the pools with the waste without getting harmed. Wow. 
Um, so engineers in the 50s used to do that for the lols. So uh, I hope <laughs> if, if, if there are any uh, nuclear companies listening, I will I will swim in the in the cooling pool on video and put it on the internet to show people that nuclear is safe. So that's good. Saying, if there's anyone anyone out there. Um, and then costs, like like I said, the first of a kind builds are really expensive, but you know, like the Koreans and the Russians just built the Emiratis for beautiful nuclear reactors. Um, each one built in less than 10 years. I don't remember the exact year off the top of my head, but it's it's generating 25% of their power and very affordably. So this idea that nuclear is super expensive again is an a historical Western view. In Germany, the nuclear plants they're closing down generate the cheapest power in the country. In Canada, um, uh, well, no, in Ontario, which is almost all of Canada's nuclear plants, nuclear is the second most affordable after hydroelectric. Um, so then like in the United States, you know, nuclear was, you know, considered to be more expensive when natural gas was super cheap. But now look at, look how things have turned. Um, mm -hmm. So like nuclear doesn't have to be expensive. Uh, okay, yeah. Yeah. And do you have any, do you have any of those concerns about when you refine or whatever the term is nuclear waste into another fuel source that it could be used as a nuclear weapon at that point? Do you know anything about that? This I have not had a chance to look into. Yeah. When, when Zehan, that was on Joe Rogan, he talked about that and, yeah. and, you know, people, people in, in, in kind of in my orbit who I trust and who are, you know, experts or journalists and stuff were all like, this is total BS. Like that is not how it works, but I couldn't tell you, I haven't read up on like the physics of it to be like, oh yeah, it, it turns plutonium X into plutonium Y, you know right. what I mean? Um, but it, like, it's like, you know, most, let's say we only had nuclear nations that already had nuclear bombs. That's most of the world's carbon emissions. Um, and so like, it's not, if the U.S. can make bomb material out of, by recycling nuclear waste. One, there's not gonna be a lot of it because there's not even that much waste in the first place. But two, who cares? Like, what are we, what do people expect? We're gonna make uh, a little bomb material then sell it to the Russians? Like that's- Right, insane. okay, that's a good point, yeah. Like, who cares? Right. Um, no, so the, the question is really when you, when you export it to countries that, you know, you don't necessarily wanna have nuclear weapons. Um, I mean, I talked to, uh, some nuclear experts from my last piece on, for Quillette. And, and I asked, you know, does nuclear proliferation of, of nuclear energy lead to bomb proliferation? They all said no. And they said the only way to make bombs out of civilian nuclear energy stuff is to buy facilities, to create really expensive, difficult to make facilities to, to refine um, uh, uranium and plutonium. So I'm skeptical that, that it's really a problem. I see. Okay. So what what would be your steel man of the anti-nuclear case? One thing, you know, I, I really don't even want to get into the whole like, oh, Fukushima is scary because you know, no one has died from nuclear accidents or like virtually no one has died, whereas people die all the time from falling off roofs installing solar panels. And that's a real human life that is lost from this technology. And we need, you know, and people die, like thousands of Americans die every year from car fumes, like on and on. I mean, so like the, the deaths from nuclear power, I, I don't consider that at all a... Uh, a point against nuclear because you can just like look at the charts and like literally no one's that. But like putting that aside, you know, unless you think that that's worth steel manning, 
What do you think is the best case against nuclear if if you were to, you know, present that case? Yeah, I think, well, I think I would I would definitely put safety in as, as part of the steel man, if, if nothing else, because one, it's really important. The next piece I want to write for Quillette, I wanted to write about like Fukushima and the actual impacts of Fukushima. Because mm-hmm. if nuclear isn't safe, like the antis say, then we should only use it at a minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I mean, that's a huge consideration. But then we've talked about cost, waste. Um, I mean, the benefits of solar and wind are, are, you know, they have no fuel costs. They're easy to manufacture. Uranium, I mean, nuclear plants have uranium, which obviously is a fuel, but it's actually, they're just much more difficult to manufacture. Mm-hmm. People say, well, these nuclear plants take too long to build, which, I mean, we already talked about how that's an inaccurate view. Um, so, I mean, when it comes to safety, like Chernobyl, you know, caused probably over 4,000 cases of thyroid cancer. Um, and exposed millions of people to some dosage of radiation, same with Fukushima. Um, and then, of course, Three Mile Island, you know, the reactor blew up and radiation escaped into the air. What people don't tell you is like less than 300 people have been killed in nuclear accidents in the United States, like mm-hmm. in the United States, in the world, in the history yeah. of the technology. Um, like Chernobyl is probably, you know, around 245, 250 deaths. And that's because thyroid chan- cancer is really treatable. And, and radiation is just not as dangerous as people think it is, really. Mm-hmm. Fukushima, it is estimated maybe one person has died from radiation from Fukushima. And that's the second worst accident in the history of the technology. Right. And it's like, yes, a big plume of, of radiation did in, impact people around Japan. But most of the dosages were equivalent to just living on Earth for a year. And the, and, you know, the, the scientists who say that creates a, a major cancer risk, that's just simply not a credible. Yeah, and people who would say that is just compare it to the thousands and thousands of Americans who live next to coal coal plants, and how bad that is for their health and their children's health. I mean, you know, it does. It's not even comparable in my mind. Yeah, no, nuclear has saved millions of lives by displacing fossil fuels. Like, no, no question about it. No question about it. Um, so you know, like, like one of the craziest facts I learned about Chernobyl was that. The um, after the accident, only one of the reactors blew up. After the high-level radiation dissipated, and they cleaned up the the now exploded reactor, they turned the other reactor on, other reactors on, and then used them for power until 2000. And when the Ukrainian government closed Chernobyl, the workers at Chernobyl protested the closure of the plant. Like these are workers who are like, yeah, I love working at Chernobyl, said what no one would think you'd ever hear that sentence. You know, no one's like, oh, Chernobyl, a great workplace. You That's know? interesting. Yeah. Um, and like with the waste, after 400 years, you can hold it in your hand. So this idea that we have to like shield this waste for tens of thousands of years or we'll poison the earth irrevocably is just not accurate. It's like, yeah, after 400 years, don't eat it. <laughs> um that's not that hard guys not eating radioactive waste is like really easy right um so and then of course like solar panels some of you know i don't know if this is still true but in 2019 it was true that a lot of them contain heavy metals like lead and cadmium right which are toxic because they're elements in perpetuity they don't get cleaner nuclear waste becomes less dangerous over time lead does not and so you know one of the things that's so compelling about nuclear is that like I think what we've touched on, but like, there's just so many myths around it. 
Yeah. And so if you want to be pro-nuclear, you've had to read about how the myths are fake. And so that, you know, requires you to know, know, know stuff. Um, no, but nuclear kicks ass. That's the summary of summary of that point. What What is your take on the folks who are way into the green movement, but in sort of this like anti-human way where they think that we just need to use less energy across the board. And if, if the way to the a healthy future is kind of like to return to nature and use less energy and have less shit. What, what's your response to them? Yeah, well, they don't, they don't understand that nuclear ends energy scarcity. They don't, they don't understand that nuclear ends environmental harm associated with energy production like it just hasn't like for you know all of industrial modernity industrial processes have had substantial negative impacts on the environment and they just don't get that that doesn't have to be true like we've invented our way out of this problem and instead they're the chief opponents of it mm -hmm. and you know why that is you know schellenberger says it's a religious thing which maybe you know maybe that's right um it's, they certainly see nuclear as evil. They perceive it as unnatural and unholy. And while solar and wind are like, it's the appeal to nature fallacy. Like these are good because they're in harmony with nature. And nuclear is like, you know, we've energy for all of human history has been through combustion. And so like now what you can understand, like coal, it's like, how does this work? Oh, you just light it on fire. I know what fire is like, so I'm not scared. <laughs> uranium i'm scared of this is this is terrifying um so they you know we the energy scarcity mindset it's going to take a long time i think until the world comes around to nuclear like it's not going to come before nuclear it's not going to be until we convince everyone to love nuclear that people it'll click like oh we can we can do all the things you know our grandparents dreamed of doing and all the people who dream who live in energy poverty what they dream of right we can make that happen without destroying the environment um so you know hopefully those environmental groups come around um i i do think about like the that what would happen if after three mile island if the if the environmental movement had been dedicating millions of dollars and you know billions of man hours to promoting nuclear instead of demonizing it because like there wouldn't be any myths if the world's most powerful environmental organizations were dedicated to had spent decades promoting nuclear like i just right. think like you'd have the resources to get rid of the myths. So they need to get out of the way, damn it. <laughs> uh, so I, I do like this idea that we do broadly need to get away from the scarcity mindset. I, I think that it is just, I mean, you know, one, it's lame. And two, we are just going to keep using more energy, whether anyone yeah. likes it or not. The people who complain about this, in my mind, they can't not be hypocrites hypocrites even if they don't you know even if they want to be you know as as non-hypocritical as possible just because of the world we live in and the world is not going to deconstruct itself it's going to be continue to be more energy uh require more energy just to, to function um in your house as we get like smart houses and everything all of a sudden plugs in so i really do like this idea of and i think this is is inevitable that we are going to, you know, if we just look a couple hundred years out, we're going to be a planet that consumes way more energy. A lot of the countries like India that have, you know, 20 times the population of the U.S., all of them are going to want the U.S.'s goodies. 
sometime in the next hundred years, right? And they're gonna get them and that's gonna require a lot of energy, right? So I, I think that we're gonna need to scale up our energy production, no matter what it is going forward. And what I love about this and thinking this way is that you, I mean, the the, the we have the ability right now to have way, have overabundance of energy. It's completely possible. Uh, uh, Peter Thiel, who I'm not a huge fan of, but like he was talking somewhat recently at, at uh, Stanford and he was saying that, uh, I, I believe this was him, or maybe it was a tweet that I saw related to him, that, uh, you know, he has this, this, this organization where he encourages you to drop out of college and to start your own company, right? Hmm. And apparently when you show up to this, this thing, a fellowship or whatever exactly it is, uh, you'll they'll say like, okay, what's your business plan? Like, okay, well, I want to serve you know ten thousand people with like X product, and they'll say to you, okay, how do you serve ten million people with this product? And like, whoa, okay, ooh, okay, now I have to think way bigger. That's what I think we should be doing with energy. I think that we should, okay, so we have a planet of eight billion people. How would we solve this if right now today the planet had twenty billion people? And then start there, and then have that conversation. I was recently watching the YouTube channel Real Life Lore, and he had this episode about the Sahara Desert and how if we uh, put solar panels across the entire Sahara, um, it would, which is you know completely infeasible for a number of reasons, but let's just say if we were to hypothetically do that, uh, we would have just from solar panels seven times the energy we need right now to power the whole planet. So that, like, like that's solar panels, and that's just like one project. And we could—it's—it's it's silly, but you know that—that—that that, that is a thing. Um, what is your perspective on going way out there with your predictions for the future about what we should or can or could do to power the planet in you know the year three thousand when we have conceivably quite a few more people, and whether or not we have more people if we have people more people who need. Uh, the American equivalent of the good life with all the electricity we use. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, environmentalists who think using less is, is, is the answer to our energy problems. It's like, that's just a terrible strategy. Like we're not going to be using less energy. Actually in the developed world, energy use is flatlined uh, because things have gotten more efficient, which is pretty wild considering that we have like smartphones that we didn't have 20 years ago and everyone's using them all the time and everyone has a laptop and everyone has, there's just so many computers using energy yet our energy use has not skyrocketed which is pretty remarkable um but of course with evs i mean people are expecting energy use to go up in the developed world and then the developing world they're in or billions of people are in energy poverty where they don't have enough energy to be anything but poor and um this great journalist robert bryce has something he calls the iron law of electricity which is people will do what they have to to get power and hmm. Germany's showing that it's like Russia cut off the gas, so we're gonna destroy our own villages and old growth forests for coal. Yeah, they'd rather destroy the forests for coal than go hungry, which mm -hmm. makes sense. Um, and then so yeah, you think about a planet like we're probably gonna get to 10 billion people, right? And who knows, through maybe in, th in year 3000, there'll be 20 billion people, you never know. Um, like nuclear is just the, is obviously the best candidate for a world with. Uh, massive energy needs because of its energy density. Um, one pound of nuclear fuel is equivalent to one million pounds of Tesla batteries. Wow. Yeah. And every, I think these numbers are, I'm pretty sure it's like every one ton Tesla battery requires 
moving 500,000 pounds of rock. So like, that's just a mind boggling. Imagine how much rock that is for a million pounds of Tesla batteries compared to one pound of uranium. <laughs> like when you think about it that way, it's one of the reasons why nuclear ends scarcity because it just takes so little fuel to generate so much power. And then when you talk about solar panels over the Sahara, one, we can't just put solar where the where the best sun is because that's not necessarily where people are and transmission right. is really efficient. Um, but here's like here's an example. In China, the, the largest solar plant in the world is in China, in the desert, and I think in Tibet. And it takes up 50 square kilometers. And in comparison, the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant in California takes up less than one square kilometer but generates six times more power. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And of course it does that is the most reliable energy source on the planet um, in terms of extreme weather, in terms of just, just working. It has the highest capacity factor, generates power more, more of the time than any other power source. Um, and so when you think about a planet of 20 billion people, it's like, where are they all gonna go? If we're, there are gonna be solar panels literally everywhere if we have a planet of 20 billion people all using US levels of power. And even then, all these solar panels, because they don't work at night for some reason, would need backup um, from, you know, from from what fossil fuels, like from nuclear. So, um, just the energy density of nuclear is—it's like that's why it's scalable. Mm -hmm. And it's there's nothing else even close. It's—I uh, forget how much more dense it is than coal, but like, like if it's it, it's you know it's orders of magnitude more dense than any other energy source available, even natural gas, which is like the best fossil fuel. Right, right. So uh, one last question about, you know, energy related, and then I want to pivot just a little bit with some other random questions that I, I'm kind of curious to pick your brain on. But uh, what are, I've been talking about this a lot lately. What are your thoughts on cities of the future? A lot of these are, you know, part of the baseline proposal is they're going to be green. Some sure. of them use, uh, you know, are really heavily dependent on wind or, or solar panels or, you know, they, they all have a conception for how they're, they're going to do this. But um, they, they all have energy as a central component of, uh, you know, building them. So that's kind of curious if you have any hot takes on these and have you looked into any of these, like, you know, the, the line in Saudi Arabia, there's Tolosa in the United States. There's there's a bunch more of these floating cities in Asia, this sort of thing. Do you, do you have any perspectives on these? Sure. So, so I've looked in, you know, into the line in Tolosa specifically. Um, and I think, obviously, if they weren't talking about energy at all, then they would be completely unserious. Yeah. Um, but of course, like the line is, I, I think... Uh, like the line is incredibly implausible. Um, Me too. Like, first of all, powering a city with renewable energy, it's like, okay, well, what are you going to do when it, the wind doesn't blow for two weeks and also it's the winter, so it's only sunny seven hours a day? Yeah. Um, so that's pretty unserious. And the Saudis probably know better and are just using it as PR. That's um, my thought, honestly. Yeah. So... And then, you know, they want to build it like, you know, they want to build really tall to save land from environmental use. But uh, urban areas, half the world lives in urban areas, and it only takes up 1% of the habitable land mass. And so urban areas are actually already very space efficient. Mm -hmm. And so if you're an environmentalist concerned about this, which you sh you know, I think you should be, like the more space that we take up, the less space there is for protected lands. 
the goal should just be to create denser cities um, or even or even yeah. just denser suburbs, like turning suburbs from, you know, one home per acre to four units per acre. I mean, that would be radical. That'd be a radical change. I love that perspective, actually. That's great. Yeah. I never even thought about making suburbs more dense, but that's a that's a great perspective. Yeah, which I could say I thought of it. I did not. Someone else did that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and then like in the line is you know supposed to be 500 meters tall the, for 173 kilometers, which is the height of the Empire State Building. It's a, it would be equivalent to building like thousands of Empire State Buildings over and over again. Right. And the reason we don't build everything up super vertically is because it's more expensive than building a suburb. Um, among other reasons, some people just don't like tall buildings. Like that's a whole that's a whole aesthetic thing. Um, but if if they think they're gonna this line is gonna be affordable for people, like good luck with that, guys. You know, yeah. good luck with that. Either that's, you're gonna yeah. lose money or it's gonna be luxury condos. Like so and, and, and like another thing too is that like cities obviously have problems, but they're they're kind of a tried and true solution for boosting your economy. Like <laughs> one of the great things about cities is that they increase the GDP output and worker efficiency of the workers there. Like that's why, you know, bigger cities pay better is because those workers are literally just turning out more product, if you will. Um, and, and, you know, urban economists will, will show you, it's like, oh, these urbanization increases GDP through network effects and other benefits. Um, and so like cities are already super great. Yeah. And also the line is only supposed to be 200 meters wide. Like everyone is just gonna get very claustrophobic. Yeah. Like that's 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 what I'm thinking too. Yeah. You couldn't even fit a baseball field in the line. Well, I mean, you could fit the field, but how are you gonna fit a modern stadium in it? How are you gonna fit a modern stadium? Um, so it it seems like kind of I just don't get the point. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like at least with Telosa, I can see it's like, oh, you're just you're building a traditional city, but you're just you're using you're founding it using tons of kind of unorganically using tons of billionaire money like that. Right. At least that makes a little more sense than the line because, you know, they want to have this, the architecture for Telos is really weird. Personally, mm -hmm. I like traditional architecture. I think like me too. Yeah. We're slowly getting back to where we're doing like a mix of we're doing hybrid traditional, but with modern elements, like huge windows, you know, mm -hmm. like in the Telos images, I saw looked pretty hideous um that's i'm actually writing a piece about this right now where i'm i i'm just kind of like ranting about these future cities how they just i don't know they, they don't have any like the human warmth of a, a city that's grown up over thousands of years like european yeah. cities or you know east coast cities or you know walking through brooklyn or wherever where it's like there's so much warmth and humanity all around you that yeah. it's the equivalent of walking through a forest because it's so organic in some sense that this yeah. glass and steel and white walls just kind of doesn't fulfill that yeah i think i mean i like modernism but i think i do too maybe we're actually yeah. similar on this because i love modernism but yeah. i i think that you do and there's probably a way to do this. Maybe we're just like like not there yet, but I think that you can have a modern facility that has exposed brick wall and exposed, you know, steel beams. There, there's like just a couple of touches, a couple of touches can they can make ultra modernism still warm and human. Well, I mean, traditional architecture has lasted for so long because it's awesome. Exactly. Yeah. And and I definitely think that when it comes to energy too, like doing the tried and true is like if there's a solution that already works, just do that. 
Like, right, right. Don't waste your time trying to reinvent the wheel. It's like it turns out wheels have worked for thousands of years. Um, like with, until with, the day they stop working. <laughs> yeah, because physics is going to change that. Um, <laughs> so no, but like with like with energy, it's like how do we decarbonize from fossil fuels? It's like well, we already know that nuclear replaces fossil fuels one to one. Like nuclear is yeah. even more reliable than fossil fuels. Like we know it just it that's that. You know what I mean? Um, and when it comes to new nuclear designs, like we should explore all the different types of designs, but it's a good thing investors are working on small modular water cooled designs because like those probably have the best shot. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to discount other designs because the water cooled ones um, often aren't the, the type that can produce really great industrial heat. Um, but like water cooled works like we know how we know how it works. So so that's tried and true. And then I mean, with cities like. I, you know, we went to New Orleans for the Quillette Social. I went to a wedding in Charleston. You know, these historical areas are absolutely beautiful. Oh, they're so and good. Oh, my God. They give you so much life. And yeah. so many American cities are absolutely devoid of that. Mm -hmm. And so, like, these these new, these utopias should just look at currently existing cities and just kind of copy what they do. And that's what the Tolosa people would say they're doing. Like, we want to have, like, Scandinavian equity with some other stuff like Japanese trains. They have kind of the right buzzwords, but I don't trust them. You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't trust them. That guy has Walmart money. You can't trust that guy. Well, he, they need some more like just punk rock spirit in there. I don't know. <laughs> they need some more like some graffiti artists to help design that. I don't know. That sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I'm going to get a little bit short on time, but uh, I do want to pick your brain just a little bit on the homelessness issue since you have worked on Schellenberger with you know, on this, this topic, I interviewed him for Quillette, cool. got his whole spiel. I've read his book on this. You know, I, I've read a, quite a bit about the homelessness issue. I'm at a position right now where I just am getting very bleak and down on it. I don't think that anything's going to happen. I think this is just going to be a, the status quo in America, especially like San Francisco for a very long time. And I think that that's just because every time at least speaking in terms of San Francisco, every time a good idea comes along that will help solve the problem, there's a lawsuit from the ACLU or something like that that makes it so that we can't actually do anything, even if 90% of the population in San Francisco is totally fed up, right? And yeah. so I, the, the the way that like we're structured in America, I just think that there are too many ways for uh, radical leftists, let's say, to, and I don't like terms like that, but to channel Schellenberger, the radical left, let's say, uh, they, they just have too many tools to make it so that our law enforcement and everything is, is ineffectual. Plus, in San Francisco, we can't, there's just no space to build facilities to house people, especially like if what Schellenberger says is true, 30% of the homeless population comes from out of the city. So the, the second, the absolute second there are the facilities to house enough people you're going to get another influx of homeless people and the problem just expand i mean i you know it's i'm very down on this topic i am very bleak and i'm i'm at where tim Dillon is at where he joked about los angeles uh is just let's just call it the uh the homeless capital of the world he was joking when he said this but he was just kind of like let's just embrace it this is just what we do well we have homeless people and so this we're gonna have tour buses going through skid row now and let's just embrace it you know i'm i'm literally getting that cynical on this topic uh yeah. do you have any optimism left on this topic or i mean kind of where where are you at with this yeah well i mean not every 
democratic city is San Francisco or LA. So it's a un- California and the West Coast uniquely bad political culture on this issue. Yeah, I, I recently moved to Sacramento and it's not nearly as bad here, but it's bad, you know, and it's worse than yeah. it was and it's not getting better. So, but yeah, for sure, I am West Coast biased on this very much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, Richmond has a pretty high poverty rate, but the homelessness is very manageable. Like, it's just not, it's just, it's part of the city. Like, there is homelessness, but it's not some, it's not like Berkeley. When I was living in Berkeley, like, the middle of a pristine suburb, there's homeless people everywhere. It's like, which is kind of far. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to change. And I mean, in San Francisco, they've already booted out some of the radicals on the school board and on the board of supervisors. Um, And they have for by their standards a law and order da that was appointed by the mayor so there's the political you know political uh calculus should be shifting in san francisco at least i don't know about la but but you know the left-wing activists are highly organized they believe that they are fighting the good fight they show up and so that's how they have power and so the the folks like folks like you and others in, in california cities have to organize and win the war of ideas, and then win the war of votes. Um, there's no reason I think I can it's happen. so hard to win the war of ideas when I think you sound like a dick when you say you sound like an immoral jerk if you say anything remotely in the world of someone needs help. Something as simple as that, like that's that's like the only level of you know, it's it's so like not a radical perspective, but for some reason in a lot of people's minds, if you just say people need help, do they fully sign on up for it? No, because like they're schizophrenic and they're high on meth, so no, they didn't fully sign up to receive help, but they kind of need help, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> like it's just, just just saying that, just saying that is so hard to say in some circles and. Man, like I respect Schellenberger for going out there and saying these things. I, I kind of wish he would even be a little bit more humane. He's he like throws out the rat terms like the radical left so much that I think that he's he just naturally turns a certain demographic against him, which I think is not great. But uh man, like getting maybe what I'm saying is getting the messaging right on this in a way that we just get to a sane solution where we're moving towards a better world for all people. It's just so hard, hard to get that messaging right, which means it's so hard to organize around it. I don't know. Uh, maybe people will get so fed up with it, they will start becoming more, you know, willing to start talking like this. But, uh, God, you you can probably hear my frustration and <laughs> cynicism, right? right? I mean, you should be frustrated. You should absolutely be frustrated. I mean, it's terrible. I mean, you've got a kid. You're married. It's like, yeah. you don't want, like, homeless people are more likely to attack women. Funny how that is. Like, that's not a coincidence, right. you know what I mean? Like, you don't want your kid to be playing around with needles that are on the sidewalk or stepping over feces. Like, it's right. dangerous. Um, so people should be fed up. And if California was a, a purple state, like, you'd have, like, the Republican mind is just more predisposed to the, like, let's clean this shit up. Like, it's just yeah. like, a, it's just how they, it's just a different way of thinking liberals versus conservatives. Right, right. Um. But in a state that's so that's so blue that like there's no it's hard to find that impulse um, to balance out the hardcore left wing groups. Um, and I think part of the problem too is that because California's housing is so expensive, like mm-hmm. that you know that has a role for sure. 
it's like housing first. It doesn't make housing first the solution. Like you can't just do housing first and expect this to go away. Right. Um, but I mean, the activists say like, look, the reason they're homeless is because housing is so expensive. So we just need to build housing. If housing in California became more affordable, but homelessness got worse, then you would be able to say, well, look, it's obviously look, I mean, we know they're doing drugs, right, guys? We know they're mentally ill. Like, we know that is the case. So let's stop, like, beating around the bush. Like, we have to deal with those problems, too. Um, but, yeah, no, it, and the, the, the activist groups need to be convinced. I don't know if you can't convince them, but lawmakers need to be convinced that, and the public needs to be convinced that people with super mental illness aren't more free when you let them roam the streets as homeless people are in prisons. Mm -hmm. They're more free when you coerce them to do treatment. That's right. what gives them freedom is to become well. Right. And a lot, you know, and a lot of people- See, that's, that's a good messaging. That's, that's, maybe that's something that I need to lean on more heavily when I'm having this conversation. That exact talking point, I actually like that. Cause I agree with that. Although it's not, I've never framed it exactly that way, but that's, that's good, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm happy to give you talking points, man. <laughs> All right. I've worked All on three right. political campaigns. I, I can eat, sleep, and three talking points. Excellent. Hey, well, that's 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 really good. Um, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna close out there. That was that was a lot of fun, Lee. Um, thanks for coming on the show, and let's let's talk again soon. I think that was great. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Peter. It's been a pleasure.